Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line today, we have myself, Jacob Andrewarfer, as one of your presenters today. And then we have... Me, Zane Alcorn, as your other presenter. Top of the morning to you. Yeah, so good morning, everyone. Um, so, yeah, we're just getting into the nice kind of spring weather um, away from uh, the dreaded kind of winter. Uh, winter, uh, although, unfortunately, we're still, uh, for us Melbourneians, uh, we're still all under a pretty strict lockdown. That's not looking likely um, that it will get loosened um, that much until September the 13th. Well, of course, we're going to be finding out on Sunday a bit of a roadmap on the the state of restrictions on where that's going to go. But I guess before I we announce um, and go into the thrust of the program, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this always was always will be Aboriginal land. Hear, hear. Now, I guess um, in terms of um, news articles, I like to kind of discuss in terms of our program today, we're going to, we have two interviews lined up. So we're going to be having an interview with Sue Bolton about her upcoming council election campaign. Uh, Sue Bolton has been a regular guest on Green Left Radio. And then we're going to be having a, a, an interview and discussion with um, Pablo Levita, uh, who is a filmmaker based in the UK, who has directed a new film called, uh, about the campaign to free Julian Assange, uh, titled No Extradition, um, which is going to be host, um, which Green Left is going to be hosting a film fundraiser film screening of this um, Saturday, um, which is tomorrow or this Saturday, just for the confute, just so we don't get confused, because this um, is actually being recorded on a Thursday. Uh, but um, yeah, so that's um, what we have got um, coming up in our program. And I guess in terms of a sort of new uh, on what I wanted, what I thought would be good to kind of discuss um, in terms of the latest kind of news updates is maybe having a bit of a debrief and a discussion about really, I guess, the current kind of state of um, COVID-19 and, you know, general and politics kind of in general, because the current situation right now is there have just been kind of recent reports uh, that economically uh, the impact of the COVID-19 restrictions uh, is going to cause uh, Australia to kind of have a recession. Then no, it's you happening. Have... It's, it's, it's here. Oh, we, well, it's we here. are officially in a recession. So, yeah, we're officially in a recession, which is actually notable for Australia because I guess Australia has been one of those countries that has always 
even during the great um the um the the great financial crisis GFC Australia in some sense was one of those countries that in some sense escaped some of the worst effects of the GFC whereas countries like the United States were very hard hit now i guess what i've noticed in the media is there's a few things kind of happening so Tony Abbott uh recently had some spoke at some you know, right-wing kind of conservative conference, basically giving, I think, the psychopathic sort of capitalist sort of line, um, but essentially saying that, you know, Australia has to be careful and, you know, we have to reopen. We we can't ha- live under a health dictatorship forever and we have to question whether, you know, these lives that uh, are, we are preserving is actually worth it in terms of the economy. So we have that sort of line, which I think is not necessarily what's being pushed entirely by the Liberal government to give um, to be fair to Liberal government, even though I'm going to be criticising them quite heavily later on in my next comment here. Then you have Scott Morrison, who has basically made this sort of long, com- this commitment that uh, Australia is going to reopen by December and he wants everyone to have a normal kind of Christmas uh, by the time that, uh, by the time, Basically, everyone is going to go back to normal and we're going to look to an optimistic and positive future in 2021. Now, the problem is the virus doesn't necessarily work that way. Um, well, the, the virus is not a, um, it's not a Christian like Scott Morrison. So it doesn't respect these arbitrary dates. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't. And so there's no guarantee while Australia has in some sense handled the COVID-19 pandemic relatively well compared to some other countries like the US, if we're going to make that kind of comparison. And it is looking quite likely that Victoria is making a recovery from the second wave of COVID cases. And in fact, just today, as we're recording this, only 113 cases have been recorded. And that has been the trend that um, we're going, um, the cases numbers keep going low. Although there are some is- particular issues, um, for, like, for example, uh, the, he- um, the chief health officer has made a bit of a comment that we can't be too optimistic about the results because there has been to a certain level, uh, a certain level of compliance um, in a sense that a lot of people aren't who might have symptoms haven't been putting forward themselves for testing. However, on the other hand, considering we are in a stage four kind of restrictions, the fact that probably means that the majority of people staying home is probably a counteract, will counteract against that. But that said, he's still recommending that people should be putting forward themselves for testing if they have any kind of symptoms or at least recurring kind of symptoms. And I guess the other kind of issue is going back to this kind of discussion of the economy. Josh Frydenberg is going on about how Australia is going to be committing itself to a serious kind of COVID kind of 19 kind of economic kind of recovery. But at the same time, we're getting into the end. We're getting into September. The, the federal government is planning to reduce the rate of job seeker and job keeper. And, you know, there's this, there's this really profound irony. I think there's all these reports going on about how, you know, during this, this COVID-19 pandemic has had such a dramatic impact on the economy because Households aren't spending enough, and yet um, Morris, the Morrison government is going to be prepared to cut the income of millions of workers who are receiving the JobKeeper payment or those who are unemployed who are currently receiving JobSeeker. 
And, you know, the actual reality is throughout September to December, we're not going to be going back to normal. Um, there's going to be a certain level of restrictions for COVID-19. There's All workplaces will be required to follow COVID-19 safe plans. And then there's going to be a situation until at least we get a vaccine where, you know, there'll be a certain level of COVID-19 that might break out in like certain workplaces and then workplaces will kind of have to close. In fact, I was talking to a friend from the United States uh, who's one of those kind of essential workers. And I sort of, you know, I asked him, you know, has anyone got COVID-19 in your workplace? And he said, oh, well, you know, he just sort of said, well, two people have got it. And it's sort of like the fact that that's been accepted is such a, with such normalcy is probably, that's probably what we're, we're likely kind of to expect. And it's, there's not going to be this kind of quick, return to kind of normal uh, that the capitalist class um, is pushing. In fact, we're not really any sort of post-easing um, restrictions. We're still, is, we're, is not going to be going back to normal anytime soon, at least until a vaccine is developed, which is likely, I, I don't think a vaccine will likely be to develop until probably next year or maybe probably not until 2022 um, if we're, if we're being really optimistic. I saw a disturbing article going around as well, which is that Frydenberg and Morrison want to push through with the um, slated tax cuts that they'd already uh, put in um, train for high-income earners and companies. This is really dumb. So the issue here is if you have stimulus spending like job seeker and job keeper, which should be kept at the uh at the current rates, they should not be reduced. That money gets injected into the economy. Then people go to Woolworths and the Coles. And Woolworths and Coles make a profit. So that money effectively is kind of corporate welfare. It's in the pocket of a consumer, of a of a worker for five minutes, but it quickly ends up going to support the profits of those places. You pay it to your landlord, it ends up in the bank account of your landlord. It goes to support their building up equity. They pay it to their um, bank if they've got a mortgage on the house that you're renting. That that stimulus money ends up accumulating in the accounts of the big banks. Now, if the, if there's progressive taxation in place, some of that extra stimulus money then finds its way back to the federal government and the deficit isn't quite so big. If you have stimulus spending and you have tax cuts, then what happens is you're getting all this money pumped into the economy in the in the form of job keeper and job seeker. It accumulates in the bank accounts of big corporations and then they have increased spending power and there's a risk of uh, inflation. So it's, it's just really bad economics. It's really bad economic policy to be putting through these tax cuts at the same time. It's really important that we keep progressive taxation right now so that the deficits aren't massive. Look, deficits are not the end of the world, but deficits in order to fund expanded corporate profits that's corporate welfare and that's a problem. That's not good for the economy. Stimulus that, that stays in the pocket of workers and gets recycled into the economy 
is good. Stimulus, which accumulates as huge corporate profits, is not good. So, yeah, that's a that's another issue with with the policies that that are happening at the moment. These corporate tax cuts are just they were a terrible idea to begin with, and they're an even worse idea to be continuing them right now. Yeah, over the course. Just to respond to that, I mean, over the course of researching an article I recently wrote for Green Left, um, which is on the impact of stage four restrictions on workers, uh, this kind of particular um, point that I researched didn't end up making the final article because I think it's gonna we're going to likely develop it into a separate article itself. But a bit of context... When we look at the lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the, in, in Australia, one of the causes, um, for the second wave of out, or the outbreak, um, as, it, as you would describe it, uh, in Melbourne and in Victoria was through the casualization of, of workplace insecure work. Mm. And now one of the, the, the things of the agenda for, uh, for the economic agenda for the, um, Morrison government is they actually want to loosen um, workplace regulations in a sense that they want to make it more flexible for employers to employ workers uh, on flexible contracts, etc. And they see it as the way to the COVID-19 recovery because it allow it allows businesses to be able to produce more of a profit off the off workers. So I think, yeah, there is a disturbing trend, I think. And I think, you know, the union movement will have to oppose this uh, because as part of the, the post COVID-19 kind of recovery, really all the inclinations from the government has been, it's not about spending, um, investing in infrastructure. It's not about in, uh, it's not about giving, um, more, more money to workers to be able to spend money. It's actually about, you know, giving more money to gas companies and fossil fuels. It's mm. about creating flexibility for employers to, uh, employ work, uh, for workers. For example, basically making it easier for bosses to change enterprise bargaining agreements with at short notice. Um, typically employers are actually required to have much larger notice, which allows unions to be able to campaign and form um form alternative proposals to the bosses they basically want to give extra flexibility to employers uh to be able to do whatever they want with no sense of accountability Mm. so it's this kind of combination of corporate welfare and you know handouts to big business combined with a further ramping up of neoliberalism just when you thought it couldn't get any worse than it already is it's just lunacy. What we need is stable jobs with workers getting paid decent wages. That's gonna, that's gonna help the economy recover. We don't want more unstable work and we don't want government spending being squandered on handouts that basically just go directly to big business. And I mean, Green New Deal, that has never been more relevant. You mentioned before investment in infrastructure. That is the way out of this hole. Public housing, more expanded public transport, more investment in schools, something like the school hall projects that happened during the GFC under the, under the Rudd government, more investment in hospitals. There's a whole bunch of 
this infrastructure, which has not been adequately built out as our cities have expanded. So you'll have huge areas of cities, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, huge areas of the outer suburbs that don't have adequate access to schools, hospitals, public transport. Now is the time to catch up on that infrastructure backlog and the Green New Deal. We could be investing literally a couple hundred billion dollars in a huge build-out of publicly owned renewable energy infrastructure. Huge wind and solar farms out in rural Australia where you've got the most wind and solar resources, big grid upgrades to connect those into the main demand centres on the on the east coast where the cities are. That's going to create lots of jobs and it's going to leave the government with revenue generating assets and we can we can have 100% renewable energy and we can keep prices down. Like We've been pushing for this stuff for years. Uh, socialists in the climate movement have been pushing for public investment in publicly owned renewable energy for over a decade. Sadly, the Greens and the broader climate movement haven't quite taken that up. Like, there are sections of the climate movement that get the importance of public ownership. Uh, but now it's it's just, it, it couldn't be clearer. We've got a climate crisis. We've got a recession. We need public investment to create jobs and to to bring us out of this recession. It's just so obvious. Green New Deal. Yeah, and I, I think adding to that, I guess my my viewpoint, I guess, on, you know, while it's, um, I think, Zane, you make very good points. I think one of the main reasons why the government, uh, especially in Australia, would not adopt, uh, um, adopt such a plan is because they know it will set too high of a standard for workers um, in um, for workers. Um, because I think really, you know, we live under a capitalist state. Really, the interests of um, the priorities of the parliamentarians and the politicians is to make sure that the capitalist class are the ones who win out out of any sort of crisis. And even when things make logical sense in terms of keeping the capitalist system stable and going, uh, in terms of pro-worker sort of reforms, they will definitely resist any inclination towards that because they know they don't want to set a standard for workers having too much power because as soon as they, um, as soon as they, um, capitalists make use of any kind of social democratic reform, uh, to prop up their economy, uh, they'll generally try to reverse it. And I think this is where it's important that we have to build kind of a mass movement, uh, um, of, you know, that brings together workers, uh, uh, climate groups, uh, et cetera, to really have the impact to be able to force the government to be able to implement these necessary kind of reforms, uh, especially in terms of the climate and a Green New Deal. Mm. Yeah, we were talking to Alison Pennington about this the other week. It's really important that that unions and progressives have that macro kind of, um, I guess, creative outlook about the economy, about using our political and economic power to genuinely shape the economy and shape investment decisions. We've got to uh, be confident to to really put forward this vision of no, we don't want to just dig stuff up and you know some people get paid well working in the gas and the coal industry. No, 
we need to completely reshape the Australian economy in the interest of people and the planet. And that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Mm. Got to uh, work cut it out for us, as, as they would say in, uh, in the rugby league. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, I think that's a good sort of point to kind of end on as we're sort of responding to the current sort of government proposals around this whole uh, vision of a post kind of COVID-19 world. Anyway, I might just go play a quick announcement and then we might move on to another part of the program. Hi, my name's Travis from Larrakia Country, and I'm here to talk about the Reading Writing Hotline. It's a service that helps adults who can't read and write as well as they'd like to. The number is 1-300-655-06. Give them a call if you know somebody who needs help with reading and writing. It's never too late to learn, and it's easier than you think. 1-300-655-06. 1-300-655-06. The Reading Writing Hotline. A 3CR supporter. Okay, good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And me and Zane were just having uh, a bit of a discussion about this whole, uh, about the, uh, our sort of left uh, socialist, our socialist kind of response to, you know, the, um, the federal government sort of COVID sort of 19 kind of recovery kind of agenda and uh, all the kind of comments that they're sort of making in terms of the post COVID 19 world that we will hopefully um, get through in this time. Now, the next kind of thing I want to discuss is a bit of a, a different kind of topic, but it's on the question of um, Facebook and Google. And I'm sure many people have probably have saw seen this in the news. Now, one of the more shocking kind of headlines is um, that Facebook might make it illegal or might make it um, might make it forbidden on their platforms to share any kind of news content on Facebook. Well, as far as from my understanding, just um, just to clarify, my understanding is this mostly applies to commercial sort of media kind of outlets. I'm not completely sure where independent media, like, for example, FreeCR, Green Left, Red Flag, would fit under this because as far as I know, we don't, we're not demanding any, we don't have, make any revenue on news. So what well, the not fe- online anyway, like if we sell physical papers when there's not bloody lockdowns, we'll make a bit of money there to cover our costs. But yeah, we're not a we're not a for profit online provider that's you know, got paywalls and charging for articles. Yeah. So essentially what is happening is the federal government is trying to put forward some type of legislation that would basically in some sense force Facebook and Google to pay the likes of Murdoch Media or any kind of news provider in a, in Australia a certain cut of of the cost uh, for listing um, news uh, listing their news articles on on their platforms, whether that's Google Image um, Search or uh, or Facebook. Now, the complicated thing, I think, the worrying precedent, and I think in some ways you could describe the dispute here as almost in some sense a war between two capitalists. Uh, essentially, you have the News Corp at one end and then you have Facebook and Google on the other from the um, tech three. But I think there is a bit of complexities um, kind of here, and that is I think it is a very worrying kind of precedent that Facebook and Google can essentially threaten 
um, because they have such a monopoly over over the uh, over the internet, they can essentially threaten and say that, oh well, if we don't get our way uh, and the Australian government implements this legislation, then we're not going to allow people to share any news content on uh, of Australian news content on Facebook. Hmm. Now, it's I, like capital strike. It's, it's like the corporate version of going on strike. And then having actually read the article of the conversation, I don't, there's, there's not, hasn't been any, um, the specifics of what Facebook and Google will have to pay is not necessary. Okay. So basically Facebook and Google are going up in the air and saying that, well, if this legislation gets passed, it might mean that we have to pay like $10 every time someone shares an article on Facebook from an Australian news provider. Now, the actual specifics of what is of what the legislation actually says is that um, the costs of of um, me, the demand of the costs that media providers ask Facebook and Google doesn't necessarily doesn't um, can either be free or can be very low cost. Like for example, hypothetically within this legislation. Uh, the Guardian or the Age could say to Google or Facebook, all right, for you to list our content on your pages, you just have to pay us a $1,000 fee or something or $2,000 kind of fee. Or they could be unreasonable and say, well, you have to pay a dollar or $2 for every article that is shared on your platforms. Now, those are all kind of specifics that could be worked out and negotiated between these kind of two capitalist companies. But basically my impression is from reading the news reports is Facebook and Google don't even want to go as far as having any kind of negotiation. They just want to remain with the current status quo of just being able to list um, all the kind of Australian media news outlets at no cost. Meanwhile, they make tons of ad revenue off those websites, which I think is the the substance of where this kind of legislation comes from. So I think it is actually, I think, a worrying precedent, although I'm not elected, really. I don't necessarily want to take any sides here. I don't want to take a side with Facebook or the News Corp against one another. But I just want to sort of point out that these this is actually a very kind of worrying dynamic because I think, hypothetically, let's say that, the, um, that a, a government... Uh, wanted to make a demand that Facebook and Google pay a certain proportion of tax for providing their services to country X. And then let's say that Facebook and Google say, well, we're not going to pay that tax because we think that's unreasonable. We provide our services for free anyway. We're not, we're just going to cut Facebook or Google out of your country. Like, you know, let's it, hypothetically, that's the precedent that Google and Facebook is setting. And I think it's a very kind of concerning kind of trend. Hmm. Yeah, and just to clarify, so for uh, the calendar year last year, Google, uh, Facebook made uh, had six hundred and seventy-four million dollars of revenue. They booked a twenty-two point seven million dollar profit. Uh, now, who knows what sort of um, mechanisms they've got in place for tax minimisation. Uh, I'm doubting that they paid anywhere near 
$600 million in wages to their workforce in Australia of, uh, I mean, how many workers does Facebook even have in Australia? And then we've got Google. In the 2019 calendar year, Google had revenue of $4.8 billion. And uh, they had a hundred and... $34 million profit on that. And again, who knows how, uh, who knows how they um, did their books to get $4.8 billion and only have $134 million profit. Because again, I'm really doubting that Google has, you know, four and a half billion dollars of wages and overheads that they have to pay in Australia. So yeah, these, these companies, they generate traffic to their websites partly because people go there. They might do a Google news search or you're scrolling on Facebook and you're seeing people sharing news articles all the time. So part of the fundamental reason that people use these websites is because there's news being shared there. There's news being put through that pipeline. And uh, these companies then have advertising on the side. So, yeah, I think there's definitely an argument to say if uh, if they're using news to bring people to their website who then witness advertising which these companies are selling for a profit then yeah there's definitely an article there an argument there for charging to uh, to have news on their sites um, even if that is a fairly small amount so and yeah just um just something else to comment about there's also another kind of political debate um that i don't necessarily i don't necessarily have a fully formed view uh, in the midst of this whole context of this um, whole fight around Facebook and Google opposing this particular Australian legislation. Now, there has been a, a lot of criticism of Facebook and for basically allowing a lot of sort of COVID-19 sort of conspiracy and sort of far-right kind of politics to sort of, you know, be be public, published on their platform without any scrutiny. Now, essentially, the liberal kind of response to that is basically, well, Facebook needs to get rid of fake news on on the platform. And, you know, if this legislation goes through and then we're not able to share Australian news articles from reputable publishers and so on, basically Facebook will become a cesspool of fake news that will lead to the decline of, of intellectual inquiry and so on. Now, I think, you know, in some ways, on the logic of that, that does seem to be like fair points. But I think there is a bit of, there are some problems in that with that approach. For one thing, Facebook has adopted certain guidelines uh, in response to this, in response to this criticism, that basically means that they are empowered to delete um you know, they're empowered to delete far-right pages, okay? I'm not concerned about far-right pages at all. But what is happening then is they're also deleting far-left anarchist face, um, pages. So yeah. in the midst of the, in this kind of thing, there's 
they're deliberately silencing voices that are actually challenging the status quo. And then basically we're ushering in this sort of, you know, liberal kind of respectivism of, you know, we only follow respectable liberal intellectual sources like the Guardian, the Age, etc. Basically mm. pushing forward this sort of liberal intelligista ideology. Because I think mm. ultimately... But only if they're providing content for free. Yeah. Exactly. But if not, we will just censor them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that, there's that, there's those, these are all these sort of contradictions that I think mm. happening. And I think, or it does raise serious questions about how we, um, how well, about this, the, about yeah, the role that uh, Google and Facebook play. Like the other part of the picture here, of course, is that as conventional media in Australia has, and around the world has made less money off advertising and blah, blah, blah they have had to sack staff. And you can have this socialist analysis of, you know, journalist jobs come ahead of profits, but fundamentally on some level, conventional media is losing money because people are getting their news off the internet instead of buying physical newspapers. And so ad revenue is down and revenue from the sale of papers is down, right? So, Unless there are reforms like this, which create revenue streams from the online distribution of news, that's going to continue to have a bad effect on the ability of these respectable, real houses of journalism to, and you know, they're capitalists and they're liberal, blah, blah, blah. But it's, there will be further job cuts and there will be further reductions in the quality of actual journalism while ever there's money being made off online news, but these journalism houses are not getting a cut of it. So for me, these, these two questions are very interrelated by Google and Facebook, not sending any of the large amounts of money that they make from their platforms to journalists that is eroding those conventional um, reputable sources which Facebook claims to um, you know have respect for and then on the other hand you've got this censorship so yeah I think this is a, a disturbing dynamic people have seen this coming for years but it's really starting to bite now and the kind of the ability of of platforms like Facebook and Google to drag all of society to the right by kind of filtering and changing what types of news we receive and the ability of those news platforms to produce reputable media. It's yeah, it's, I I think just a broader point, just as a socialist, I mean, in some sense, you know, Facebook and Google have a certain pretension about themselves as as capitalist organisation companies. They basically see themselves as pushing, you know, the enlightened sort of liberal kind of capitalist views. They're not like Donald Trump. They're mm. liberal kind of enlightened kind of capitalists. Woke but then capitalism. You, but then you also see that this sort of brand of woke capitalism is all too happy to, you know, appeal to the worst elements of society, including the far right. Um, and yeah, when they were, um, when, even when they take certain action against these sort of far right sort of elements, they're in some sense giving, you know, giving a voice to it, um, in some sense, because even if they are totally. censoring it, 
um, they're in sense creating this sense of martyrdom for these growing kind of far right kind of movements um, and actually feeding them as being, you know, giving the impression to working class people that these are actually legitimate sort of movements that are being oppressed by the state when they play the role of being a state kind of authority, even though they're not actually a state authority, they're just a capitalist kind of corporation. Mm. Okay. Um, well, um, I think that's pretty much it in terms of this kind of discussion. Um, we're going to hopefully have an interview with Sue Bolton soon. Um, but yeah, I'll just play a quick announcement. Um, and then we might move on to the next kind of part. Hey, all you mob, it's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. Okay, good morning listeners. You're listening you're listening to Green Left and on the line we have our first interview for the program today. Um we have one of the leading candidates for the um the Sue Bolton Moreland team, um Sue Bolton who is a two-term socialist councillor in um, Moreland, uh, representing uh, the North East Ward. And the council elections are going to be coming up um, in October the 20, on October the 22nd. Uh, well, it's Fury. Uh, um, they, they're coming up on October the 22nd for a, um, a postal ballot, um, where po- people will receive a postal ballot on the 6th of October and have till October the 22nd to send in their votes. And so we have Sue Bolton on the line uh, to talk about um, her campaign. And so, yeah, good morning, Sue. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, I guess um, first kind of question that I want to sort of ask is, just for listeners' information, I guess, can you give us a bit of a background on... Um, these council elections, like what are some of the general issues um, that are going to be coming up this kind of council election? And then maybe we'll talk a bit about what you're standing for and what is kind of the platform you're kind of running on. Well, I think there is um, a big democratic rights issue that's going to, and and a privatisation issue that's likely to be coming up uh, some, one of the decisions before the council elections happens this, um, this year. And, other decisions like that have come up during the term of this coming council. Um, one issue that is coming up uh, is a belief of the current council that if you provide developers with incentives, they will provide good development. And the incentive that the council is offering up is people's right to be notified and be able to object um, to development. And the um, the two things they've got one is uh, what they call a design excellence scorecard um, removes the right of councillors to be able to vote on a development and puts the decision totally in the hands of the council officers and the first time this was implemented in Moreland it's only meant to be a trial and the council is due to vote on this before the uh, before the council elections 
um, the residents are hopping mad because um, the issue of design excellence is quite subjective. It's not an objective thing. And often the people who live in an area are the ones who are expert in knowing how the area area works in the same way that workers on the job are the experts in how the job is functioning. And so this um, removes a democratic right, um, but also the council is planning to remove residents' right to be notified or to be able to object to... Um, you know, two dwellings on a lot in the name of good design again. And really this is, um, you know, I mean, probably the council and some people would say this is all just NIMBY stuff, um, not in my backyard, blah, blah, blah. But it is an important democratic right in a community that the community has the right to have a say. And this is happening at the same time that the Scott Morrison government is working out a way of cutting, so-called cutting red tape and cutting green tape. And you need to be wary about cutting red tape and cutting green tape because usually what that means is removal of the community's right to have a say over a project, um, whether it's be on environmental grounds or all sorts of grounds. So I think we have to be opposed to any removal of residents' rights. The other service that the council provides, which is on the chopping block for this next council term, not just in Moreland, in other councils as well, and hasn't really been reported very much, is um, councils in Victoria, most of them run a home care service. Um, and as part of the deal in 2012 between federal and state governments and the local government association in Australia, um, they agreed that in return for uh, state governments funding NDIS, that the federal government would take over the home care services and fully outsource it and privatise it along the lines of NDIS so that it would be, like NDIS, a voucher-run service. Um, where there's no actually funded service by any kind of government body. Um, this is a ma massive problem, and I think we've seen problems in the NDIS with this model, and COVID-19 shows us that this casualised model is problematic because there is now starting to be COVID in these um, privatised sectors. Um, what the, so at the moment, with the council-run service, um, you have a stable workforce um, with a reasonable income um, and union conditions. Um, if this is um, allowed to be, if councils are able to get away with dumping this service and it to become a fully outsourced um, voucher model, then it means that people who receive home care will get a different carer every time because it'll be a totally casualised workforce and the workers will lose up to half their income uh, and they won't have stable, they uh, they won't have a permanent set of uh, clients um, where they can build up a rapport with people. It'll be different, they'll be caring for a different person each time. And because that is the record of the NDIS, um, being a totally casualised workforce um, and a cut in pay for people who move from government services to um, NDIS services. So 
that is something which um, our team, which is a mixture of social science and community independence, is totally opposed to privatisation. And we want to try and save this council service, the home care service, and we support democratic rights of residents. Those aren't the only issues, but those are a couple of them. Um, let me know if you'd like me to talk about some of the other issues. Yeah, well, I might get into that soon, but I guess, I mean, the other kind of question I want to kind of ask relates to another kind of context for this kind of upcoming council election. And um, this is sort of not, hasn't really been widely reported in the media, but, you know, the Victorian um, state government under Labor has implemented a sort of reform uh, to the Local Government Act um, that essentially means that um, a lot of councils um, will be single-member wards, which basically mean, um, just for listeners' information, most councils in Victoria are generally multi-member wards, which means you elect uh, three to four people within um, one sort of electorate sort of area, and generally councils are split up into sort of three electorate areas. The single-member ward will basically mean that local councils will be split into eight electorate areas where only one gets elected in each of those eight electorate areas. And, of course, that has the impact of reducing, um, potentially um, potentially reducing progressive and left-wing voices on the local council and hegemonizes, um the Labor Party, who are essentially kind of wanting to sort of retake the local councils uh, from the Greens. Um, so I guess, I mean, want to hear kind of your comments for that particular context um, for this coming council election. Well, what this proposal to shift all councils to single-member wards for the next election, next council election, it would be like scrapping the Senate and just having House of Representatives. And as we can see, um, it has been a lot easier for alternative parties to get a leg um, a leg in or a foot in in the Senate, uh, whereas it's very, very difficult for independents or alternative candidates um, or alternative parties, be they right or left, to get elected in a House of Representatives seat. Um, the Greens have really only managed to um, gain one um, House of Representatives seat. Um, and it's because that it's not based on proportional representation. So that in the House of Representatives, you could win, um, you know, 20% of the votes, but not have any, not win a seat uh, across the whole country. And it's also the reason why um, you can have, um, say, the Liberal Party government in a range of federal elections getting a minority of votes, but becoming the government. Um, so it's, um, it doesn't reflect the proportion of support within the community, um, whereas um, the proportional representation system is a much better reflection of people's political viewpoints. And so that's why it is, um, it is uh, much more advantageous to the major parties, not just Labor, Liberal Party as well, because there's certain, um, certain parts of Melbourne where the councils are Liberal Party dominated. Um, so it will advantage both Liberal and Labor having single member wards. Um, and the reason for the Labor Party wanting this, I mean, of course, they would never admit this, but is that they want to retake the inner city councils um, back from the Greens, because I think the Greens did establish 
um, or have established quite a big base of support on the inner city councils of Moreland, Yarra and Darabin. Um, and, and, you know, they've got um, some representation on other, a whole bunch of other councils as well, um, but it's probably uh, they're most influential on the three inner city councils. And I think the government has realised that that um, helped them get Adam Band elected to the lower house. Um, so the Labor Party is trying to um, take back the inner city from the Greens. Yeah, and I, I guess the next kind of thing I want to talk to you, because um, before we go on to talking about, I guess, your election platform, I guess I want to hear a bit of reflection, because you are you are a twice-elected um, councillor and you were have been elected as an open socialist, as a member of Socialist Alliance uh, for the local council. I want to hear, I guess, a bit about your kind of reflection of experiences on your intervention on local council in terms of how you have attempted to push a sort of socialist um, left-wing kind of agenda and also kind of reflecting, responding, I guess, to the more kind of conservative notions of council, which argues that... um, Council should only deal with the three R's, which is rates, rubbish, and I forgot actually what the third one. Roads, roads, rates, and rubbish. Yeah, roads, rates, and rubbish. So I kind of want to hear your kind of comments, I guess, on that. Well, I think, first of all, council is a massive bureaucracy, and councils are very neoliberal, like other sections of government, and probably most of the top bosses or top bureaucrats in council wouldn't be there if they weren't committed to or at least um, acquiesced to a neoliberal agenda. And what you also notice is that each level of government um, has has agreements with other levels of government where um, money for this or that project is dependent on um, either you know, partnerships with private enterprise or um, even if it might not be a direct relationship with private enterprise, um, partnerships with um, non-government organisations like welfare groups, etc. But basically, um, councils don't deliver all of the services. And some councils, I believe Mornington Council, actually has, delivers very few projects itself. It's almost like a manager of contracts. Um, almost everything is contracted out and they just manage the contracts. Um, so it's, there's been um, the, the impact of, you know, 30 or 40 years of neoliberalism has shown its mark on local councils. And as a socialist entering that space or even and, and someone else who's progressive, it is very hard to operate in that environment. It, um, but the, so it means that when you're sort of putting things forward or arguing for things or against things, you really need community campaigns. You're not going to be able to shift the bureaucracy or the other councillors unless there are community campaigns that start to break that apart. And it's also really important, I think, for um, left-wing councillor, socialist councillor, to not just listen to information that comes through um, council bodies, council um, bureaucrats, but also look for outside sources of information um, so that you not just... Um, 
you don't you not just towing the line uh, towing the line that comes out of council because sometimes the, the information that comes from council um is you know angled in a certain direction to get certain decisions made to persuade councillors that that's the only way you can do do something such as privatisation of home care or whatever it is. Um, so you, yeah, so councillors like a socialist councillor or an activist councillor, you need to help the community <laughs> with community campaigns and provide information to people with a view to um, people campaigning for their rights because often councils or governments are making decisions that no one in the community knows um, knows anything about. They're not aware that their rights are being stripped away until they go to use those rights and suddenly they discover they're gone. So that's why um, I've been involved in um, a lot of community campaigns um, and uh, and that has meant I have won some things on council. And there is an argument put up by the right wing to say councils shouldn't be involved in other issues, they should just be involved in roads, rates and rubbish. Um, those are the things that council controls. But actually, the council doesn't actually fully control roads, rates and rubbish. Um, the council is influenced by federal and state policy. Some roads are owned by the state government, some are owned by the federal government. Um, so the council doesn't, so there's certain things that the council has no control over, um, such as say Sydney Road, the main road going through, um, going through Moreland, um, that's a state government road. Um, the council can't change a thing on that road without the state government agreeing to it. It can lobby state government, but it, um, can't actually just go and do the work. So, it's a total furphy because also you notice with the right wing that the right wing are totally happy to move motions on things that don't relate to roads, rates and rubbish when it suits them, you know, whether it be around Anzac Day or supporting the police. So recent, at a recent council meeting, I um, moved a motion um, supporting anti-racism, supporting Black Lives Matter movement and call, and calling for uh, anti-racism banner to be restored to um, Moreland, uh, to Coburg Town Hall. And um, one of the other conservative councils countered with a motion in support of the police saying, what a wonderful job the police do and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is a councillor who talks about council just making decisions about roads, rates and rubbish. So when it suits them, the right wing roll out that argument. But when it doesn't suit them, um, and they, you know, they don't have much of an argument. They, they raise that question that councils shouldn't get involved with climate change or supporting refugees or whatever. But the reality is, um, there are a lot of refugees living in the Moreland community and, um, we've, but we've also got, an, we've got an obligation to support refugees, um, who are living in our community. Um, and we also know that um, sometimes local councils can be a force for change. So if you can start to win over local councils on some issues, it can start to put a lot of pressure on state and federal government, which is why state and federal governments want councils not to take up other issues. And in Moreland, um, the fact that Moreland and Yarra councils took 
um, positions and funded legal challenges against the East West Link um, actually um, helped back the, the community action campaigns on the ground like tunnel picket and, and all the protesting on the ground. The two things together helped defeat the East West Link. Um, and so the, the, the federal and state governments know that if, um, that when councils support a community campaign, it can put a lot of pressure on state government to change its course of action or federal government. Um, and because they know that local councils, it is easier for the community to influence, uh, and win things at the local council level than state and federal government. Next thing I kind of want to ask you about is what can you tell us, I guess, about the election platform that uh, you and the class, the Sue Bolton Moreland team is kind of running on for this um, coming council elections? Well, our slogan is community need not develop agreed. Um, and I guess uh, that's a variation on a slogan which Social Science has run on in the past called, which is people before profit. And, I think it sort of indicates that at the local council level, often the section of big business that people come up against the most is big developers, greedy developers, um, greedy developers that try and take the council for a ride and like to ride roughshod over the community. Um, and the other side of it being that the council should be focused on community need uh, rather than... Um, rather than giving the developers a free ride. So that's why we've got that particular slogan. Um, so yeah, it's in a sense, it's a variation of people before profit. And so our um, platform has a, includes a whole range of things, um, in, including, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, opposition to privatization, um, of any council services and we want to see some council services which have been privatised many years ago come back into council hands such as the swimming, swimming pools and the waste service um, south of Bell Street which is operated by a private company. We'd like to see those things come back into council hands. Um, we're certainly opposed to the sell-off of public land along the waterways um, and frequently the state government is trying to uh, sell off um, public land along the waterways and um, we want to keep council opposing the sell-off of that land and um, buying it back for the community so it can be community land in, in perpetuity if, if we can't stop the state government um, selling it off. Um, we want to keep, um, keep taking measures to combat um, extreme heat, both in terms of planting street trees, but also um, also um, having some form of heat relief centres where people can go to cool off when there is extreme heat and they they can't get cool. People can't get cool in their own homes. Um, we want to see an improvement in public transport, especially the upfield line, where if you live north of Bell Street and especially live north of the uh, where the tram line ends, um, every time a train is cancelled, 
uh, a train is running late by six minutes, then that service gets cancelled and turned around at Cobeg Station, meaning that everyone north of the north of Bell Street loses out on trains, and that can mean that people can wait up to an hour at peak hour for a train, which can, has led to loss of jobs and um, missed medical appointments, missed exams, etc., for people, um, also uh, missed job interviews, etc. So, you know, we want to see an improvement in public transport. And um, there are also many other things as well. Th- those are some of them. We're certainly committed in terms of anti-racism, um, and certainly that's really a big key factor with um, with us. Um, we certainly want to try and force the council to um, both stand up against racism, but also... Um, do more than it currently does in terms of supporting migrant communities and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, um, you know, whether it's through employment or um, other 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 forms of recognition. Um, and we also, um, we're certainly committed to not supporting rates rises above inflation because workers' wages are not rising above inflation. Um, and fee and, you know, we don't want to see fees, council fees for swimming pools, et cetera, increasing above inflation because we don't want, we want community facilities to be available for the community and it shouldn't be, um, only available for people who are rich enough to pay. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for that, I guess, Sue. And, um, guess the kind of next kind of question, kind of why do you have, I guess, any kind of final comments you'd like to make? Um, how could people get involved if they support um, what you stand for and so on? Well, I think if people um, are interested in getting involved, we've got a website and a Facebook page and it's called Sue Bolton Moreland Team. And the reason it's um, focused around me isn't just because I've got a big ego, but just because... Um, because it is a team of both Socialist Alliance and Community Independence, and I'm the common link between the Community Independence and Socialist Alliance. Um, The Community Independence standing on the ticket um, uh, very much um, support all of the... um, all of the policies that we've got, that we're running on in the election, um, the policies are totally consistent with what um, socialists should be running on in a, in a council election. Um, and so we'd like to invite people who um, would like to support us. We're running candidates in every ward in Moreland. Um, we're running myself and Megan Street in Northeast Ward, which covers from the northern tip of Brunswick all the way up through Coburg to Faulkner. Um, we're standing um, Pauline Galvin and Jacob, who's interviewing me at the moment in the South Ward, which is Brunswick. And we're standing Monica Hart, who has been a long-time activist, um, public transport activist, um, nowadays is a, a, a union delegate um, and works as a housing crisis worker. Um, she is standing in the northwest ward, which covers Glenroy, Pascavale area. Um, so it would be great to have you involved because we do need a stronger socialist presence um, in the community, in all sorts of campaigns, and in the electoral sphere as well, whether that be state um, state elections or local council elections. And it is 
easier to get a socialist elected at a local council level. And I think that is important because then I think it can break people's fear or the misconceptions they've got about socialists, um, that socialists do have um, an answer to a whole lot of issues that are happening in society. We don't need to rely on a market-driven system. And in fact, the market-driven system of um, focusing all decisions around private profit is what's brought us the aged care disaster, the quarantine hotel disaster, the Ruby Princess disaster, and all of these disasters around the handling of the coronavirus. So um, all over the world, not just in Australia. Um, and we need a system that's based on community need, not private profit. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much for that, um, Sue. Um, yeah, we might conclude this interview now um, and we might move on to another part of the program um, with a quick announcement on from FreeCR. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, on the line, um, we are very happy to have a, a special guest um, for our program this week, uh, a filmmaker, Pablo Navita. Um, Pablo um, has been um, a filmmaker, uh, is a quite a, a documentary filmmaker who's made a number of films, uh, you know, covering uh, Latin America, uh, politics, and so on. And his latest film is about the Free Julian Assange campaign, titled No Extradition, Julian Assange's Father and the Struggle for His Son's Freedom. Um, So we have Pablo on the line here to talk a bit about the documentary because Green Left will be organising, is is supporting our upcoming film screening of the film um, this coming Saturday. And, um, yeah, I would like to find out from you, Pablo, what can you tell us, I guess, about a bit the background to the film? Sure. Um, firstly, thanks for, for inviting me on and thanks to Green Left for supporting the screening on Saturday. Um, I was in Australia a couple of years ago showing a film. Actually, I've been there twice to show films and both times I think I've done uh, things with, with Green Left supporting. So it's always nice to, to collaborate and, and with you guys. Um, so this film is uh, a 35 minute documentary that I made kind of how did it happen I guess was I was covering 
some of the protests, some of the uh, court cases around the Assange case for Telesur, the pan-Latin American channel uh, based in, in Caracas, uh, for the English channel and for the Spanish channel. Um, and through that, I kind of just, you know, started covering, starting reading more about the case. And I was aware, already aware of, of, the, of what was going on with Julian Assange. But the more I read, uh, the more I was on the ground, I just felt like it was a, one, it was a, an injustice of epic proportions that was being carried out. Uh, and two, I just saw that there was this kind of small band of very dedicated activists, grassroots supporters, who would never appear in the media because they were never asked to be interviewed. Um, but that come rain or shine were there for, you know, trying to campaign and do what they could to for Julian's freedom. So I was then uh, put in touch with Julian's father, John Shipton, by John Pilger, who I imagine all of Green Left uh, listeners will, will know, the, you know, the great Australian documentary filmmaker and journalist who I uh, knew, who I know because I worked with him in 2005 on a film called The War on Democracy. I was his Venezuela research. I was living in Venezuela. And so we've, we've stayed in touch. He put me in touch with John Shipton. I interviewed him and I was just struck by him as a, as a person, as a, his kind of mild-mannered way of speaking, but he's also sort of fierce sort of determination to free his son. And I just thought, it just, yeah, I just thought, why don't, why don't I do a short documentary based around a few filmings with him at events, coupled with this other side, which I thought was also important. And I just wanted to put those two together. And that's essentially how this film came about. And it's kind of brief context, I guess. Yeah, thanks for that, Pablo. I guess, I mean, I want to talk a bit about the specifics of the film, but I was wondering, um, just for the, I guess, the benefits of um, the listeners, um, what can you, I guess, tell us, um, especially from your experiences kind of making the film, about, I guess, the whole background um, for the whole free Julian Assange kind of campaign, like the, the particular mm. kind of context of, of where, where it seemed. I mean, because um, one of the things is... It used um, the whole Julian Assange kind of story used was a very big thing when I was first getting into politics, um, yeah. which was in 2013. Um, yeah. And then, of course, since then, um, a bit of a shame. Um, the the whole kind of campaign uh, for kind of Julian Assange has kind of dropped off. So that's sort of the background yeah. for myself. I come from. So I guess what is sort of some of the kind of background kind of information on this sort of current yeah. status of. Julian Assange and the campaign that you could tell us about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I wouldn't speak on behalf of the sort of grassroots um, UK campaign. I, I, kind of, I kind of see it as an outsider. Although, having said that, uh, my mother appears in the film briefly, uh, an excerpt of a speech she gives outside the Ecuadorian embassy. And my mother has been very active in the grassroots London campaign. She's a, you know, my, you know, my, my name is Pablo Navaretti. It's not a typically uh, British name. Uh, my parents are Chilean, uh, who were politic, who were forced to flee Chile after the Pinochet coup in 1973. Uh, both my parents, you know, were political prisoners and suffered. You know, they were, suffered on, in, in those concentration camps and, and came to the UK. And my mom is someone that quite early on actually has become involved in this grassroots campaign uh, and uh, been, you know, one of those that uh, that that come rain or shine is at Belmarsh or 
or in the um, Westminster Crown Court. So that's actually another connection as to why I, I you know, the connection I had to the case uh, through my mum uh, was a little bit more personal. So in terms of where, where the case is at, I mean, I think, as you say, I think in 2013, um, you know, Julian Assange was widely kind of lauded for the work he was doing exposing uh, US war crimes and a number of other leaks. And subsequent to that, obviously, came these uh, sexual uh, assault accusations, which really, uh, it has now transpired that they, you know, they were, high, they were highly irregular, she was, uh, would be at the best, the most diplomatic way of, of, of sort of concluding as to how these unfolded. I mean, the more and more I hear about it, and here I think I would really recommend people uh, read the articles of Matt Kennard and Declassified UK, which is a new independent media um, uh, independent media website uh, on the UK security state. And Matt Kennard is a former Financial Times journalist uh, who, alongside with Mark Curtis, who is basically the UK's answer to, to Noam Chomsky, the two of them have, um, you know, set about basically exposing uh, so much around the UK security state and on the case of Assange have exposed the sort of quite shameless irregularities taking place in the UK judiciary system but also um, himself and others have exposed the irregularities around what happened with how that rape or how those sexual violence accusations should have been investigated and, and, the, and what the British government did and the British judiciary did to basically stall those um, and so I think those those accusations were the uh, were the were the things that took away ma the large part of Julian's support from the general public. It made certainly people in the UK very wary of supporting Julian uh, because there was this uh, narrative imposed on people that if you supported Julian, you were effectively advocating or a supporter of rape. I mean, that was uh, at its crudest. It was that was the kind of um, narrative that was imposed and people that you know weren't able to properly follow the case uh were inhibited and you know and and you know when we look back it would be interesting to see to what extent this was you know a, there, there is a, a you know sufficient evidence to conclude that there was this probably was some kind of campaign from the security services uh, precisely because they knew that it would be so effective in taking away julian support so yeah i think uh, there has, you know, the general public has been, uh, he has been demonised, there's been a character assassination of Julian, which has obviously affected his support base, the amount of people willing to advocate for him. Uh, things have changed in the last couple of months, I think, in terms of uh, a kind of level of support from media groups, from Amnesty, from uh, uni journalist unions uh, that are increasingly sort of advocating as, as, you know, on Monday, the 7th of September, the the, the extradition trial kind of starts again and the kind of in theory the final the final set of hearings um, and so there is a, a kind of momentum towards supporting Assange um, again even by uh, newspapers such as The Guardian in the UK which is for your listeners that might not know is supposed to be the most progressive uh, newspaper and worked with Julian initially on on publishing the leaks then fell out with him and and actually has been at the forefront of some of the worst uh, smearing of Julian and the case in general in, in the UK, but now has come out with editorials sort of advocating and saying, you know, it would, <laughs> the, the, the sort of, uh, the repercussions for press freedom were he to be extradited to the US and face up to 175 years in prison, 
the um, kind of pennies dropped with journalists in terms of what this means for their own uh, capacity to exercise journalism and expose and to be handle um, leaked information. So um, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but I would say that there's more support than there has been for a while. Um, what's been really uh, uh, shameful, I would say, is the lack of support from the British media cl uh, political class, sorry, and that's across the board. And obviously under Jeremy Corbyn, there was some level of support, but I think in the context of the you know, relentless attacks that he was subjected to uh, and character assassination, um, I think that his team didn't feel that the Julian Assange case was something that they were willing to expend massive amounts of political capital on. Um, uh, and now, obviously, we have a new Labour Party leader who's much more um, sort of back to business, um, sort of, you know, uh, pretty much a man. I mean, he's a Sir, Sir Keir Starmer, a man of the establishment, and a man who was actually the head of the Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS, when a lot of the sort of, uh, when the Swedish uh, judiciary was trying to investigate this rape, and there are damning emails, again, exposed by Matt Kennard, who's got a very, you know, a fascinating article for the Grey Zone, a US media outlet, where he poses five questions to Keir Starmer around uh, what, what, you know, and one of them includes the Assange case. So, the, politi the, the political class in the UK has been uh, shameful. Uh, there is a grassroots campaign and there is an increasing amount of media watchdogs. Uh, to what extent this can really put pressure on the Johnson government to not succumb to this blatantly political persecution, which it, already, which it, it has already uh, you know, taken part of. I mean, he's in Belmarsh, has hardly had access to his family, his lawyers. Uh, he's, his health is, you know, not good and he's not well uh, he's been denied access to doctors um you know the, the british state has um i would say verging on torture i mean the un rapporteur niels Meltzer has said that the uk is responsible for at least psychological torture so yeah i mean i think to sum it up i think all of this has meant that the average person in britain is not aware that there is a journalist in a high security uh, prison in South London, which is meant to be for the most dangerous criminals uh, in London and or in the UK, who's basically uh, a political prisoner of the British government on behalf of the US government, and that's kind of the basic facts of this case, which are not, uh, which are, you know, should be should have the general population up in arms and the political and media class up in arms, but that that you know that's not the case, and I think. Some of what I've just talked about is the reason why that isn't the case. Yeah, well, thanks for that. I think that is actually kind of a bit of a useful kind of kind of background, um, especially got, um, kind of drawing, I guess, on the British sort of perspective, um, um, which you, you um, gave kind of insight. What can I guess? What can you tell us now, going into the um, the film? Um, what can you tell us about the film? I guess in terms of specifics, uh, especially yeah. in terms of how it contributes, I guess to this whole campaign to um, free Julian Assange? Yeah, I mean, as a, you know, as a, I don't pretend to be a kind of one of these, I don't think even the, the BBC journalists who say they're unbiased even believe that. But certainly I've always, you know, I've worked on, uh, my parents are Chilean, my, the focus of my journalism and my, and my documentary films has always been Latin America. So in that sense, the Julian Assange, what was happening to Julian kind of, imp uh, made me feel that I had to, for the first time in a documentary, cover an issue that was, I guess, UK-based. 
and also because I've been covering the UK for Telesword, it's kind of given me a, a much more of a desire to sort of cover the injustices happening, you know, where I live, where I was born, you know, even though I've lived in Latin America, I've lived in the US, I was born, I uh, went to school here, um, uh, went to university here, I live here now with my family. So, um, um, yeah, this, this has made me want to cover uh, a UK issue for the first time. And the film, as I say, tries to balance uh, a kind of uh, more of a human approach. It's an observational film uh, in that sense. I've made films before, which I'm kind of, kind of having worked with uh, John Pilger, you know, I tried to, I guess, in my first film, emulate uh, some of that uh, style, the the VO, some of the archive. Um, but I think the last two films I've made have been observational films. Um, and I think with this film, it's it's a simple, you know, we, we spent three different filming uh, sort of sessions with John at different events. One was a concert outside the home office. One was a visit to Bel uh, visit to Belmarsh and an award ceremony outside Belmarsh. And the last one was a trip, his trip to go and see Julian on the train again. And so within, uh, you know, interspersed to that are the kind of scenes, some of the scenes that I filmed outside the magistrate's court, um, uh, a big event that was done in a church in central London where a number of speakers. So it's a, it's a film that just tries to balance the kind of what a father uh, feels on a quite human level with the kind of wider politics of the case. Uh, and that's given by, uh, and also to, to sort of, you know, provide a platform a little bit for these, what I consider sort of heroes or sheroes, people who are just completely ignored. If not ignored, if not uh, denigrated by the mainstream media as kind of oddballs or whatever, um, people that, you know, who recognize the injustice which everyone should recognize and who have, you know, campaigned. So the film tries to just, in a quite simple way, do all that in 35 minutes. And, and, and yeah, and I hope that you're, that your listeners will tune in on Saturday and, and there'll be a Q&A with um, Mary Kostakidis, I understand. And, and Mo actually is impo an important. He's, it's the first time he does a Q&A for the film and Mo features in the film. He's a journalist who is probably the journalist here in the UK that's covered the case the most systematically. He's been at pretty much all the hearings, you know, when, whenever, you know, the media should have been at, he was there and he knows probably more about the case than anyone else. And I think he's also you know, a kind of hero of journalism, the, the kind of person who's been doing, following this case in a way that most journalists should have from the start, but haven't. So I think I'm really looking forward to, to the Q&A with, uh, with uh, Mo, with Mary, and, uh, and it's chaired by, by Green Left. Actually, that um, adds into another question, because one of the, um, just for, um, from someone who's uh, been trying to promote the film around, um, oh. one of the sort of attractive things about um, the documentary um, has been uh, a number of the kind of um, guests and people that you talk to in this film. Uh, in fact, oh. um, from my understanding, you um, there is a there is a discussion with uh, the famous sort of pop star MIA, and I kind of oh. wanted to hear from yeah you what what are some of the what are some of the people and um, that you hear from, I guess, in this particular film? Mm. Well, with MIA, I mean, MIA, the, the reality is that MIA performed at this big event. So she's a kind of, she's, uh, we, we show some of her performance. So we don't actually sit down and talk to her because I think the idea, this, uh, this film isn't really about, it's not a kind of talking heads interview. It's not like get a number of famous people sit down. It's, it's more of a, a, you know, it's an observational film in a way, but, but it's not a classic observational film in the sense that we try and make 
so, so for example, the, this event in this church where John Pill just spoke, uh, a number of people spoke. There were about 10 very high profile speakers. But obviously I can't, you know, I can't make a film where, where you have, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of, you know, speaker after speaker. I mean, it's not a summary of an event. But what I really wanted to do was to try and look at a way of fitting this in uh, to this film, uh, which in a way that was kind of dynamic, but that, that gave this really important context to people. Because I think sometimes my, my, the way, and this is going into a bit filmmaking now, the reason why I always kind of perhaps shied away from observational filmmaking was because I'd seen a number of films uh, that were, you know, really interesting, really uh, emotional, powerful, dealing on dealing with certain issues which I knew a little bit about. And whilst they were great films in the sense that as a kind of on a micro level, on the individual level, I always felt that the absence of context uh, meant that the, the view that the person watching it, whilst you know appreciating it on the level of that micro level, wasn't left with much information about the wider context. And obviously as someone as a I guess as a left wing filmmaker and journalist, um, sort of you know systemic uh, views on the world and critiques are, are kind of important for me and I've always I think been part of the films I make so I was in a way it was a kind of a little bit of an experiment to see how I could you know how I could provide that context in a way in an observational film so MIA appears performing though because I'm always I've always I've also I guess perhaps just because I'm a big music fan I I, I think it's important to to give flavors in documentaries it's not lit just talking heads and obviously it was a very you know it was a nighttime performance it was a quiet i mean people when people watched there was all these glow sticks and i just thought that it was nice to show that but we also have the the, the uk iraqi some of you some of your listeners might know about loki who's a good friend of mine and he's a uk iraqi um hip-hop artist an extremely um intelligent and uh person who's um who was speaking at that event. And so I began my sort of clip, that scene begins with, with some excerpts of the speech he gave, which I thought were extremely powerful. And, and you know, John Pilger spoke at that event and Lisa Longstaff from Women Against Rape. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a number, Nils Melzer, the UN Rapporteur on Torture was at that event. And so we include four of say nine speakers. And obviously we include the, the kind of, the best, or the best of or except from those speeches um, to provide that context and hopefully in a way that doesn't detract from the general flow of the film. Hmm. Well, thank you very much um, for that, um, Pablo. Um, I guess that's pretty, um, we're actually running a bit out of time because um, um, this is a, a Zoom account that is going to be used for another purpose um, soon. Um, I guess I wanted to ask, um, do you guys um, have any kind of final comments um, you'd like to make? Um, and hmm. also I can, advertise the film screening at the end after you make your final comment. So that's all good. Uh, I mean, just that, you know, I would, um, as I say, it was an, uh, a film that was made uh, irresponsibly in the sense that it, I had other projects, COVID came, those projects were delayed. Uh, so it was, you know, no budget. Uh, it was a truly independent film, the kind of film that I said I wouldn't be making anymore um, uh, in the sense that, you know, I have, I have a family, I live in London. But I just felt I felt that it was it had to be made and it had and there are other films that will come out later after the exhibition hearing. But it's a film that I wanted to come out before the exhibition hearing 
um, because I hope uh, as many people as possible can watch it and there are plans afoot to, to make sure that that's the case. You know, we have a Spanish language premiere on Sunday. Uh, there'll be, you know, versions in Italian, French, uh, Portuguese and hopefully other languages. So yeah, we're, I'm trying to get the film out there uh, as much as possible and I look forward to, to Saturday. Yeah, thank you very much, um, Pablo. Now, for listeners' information, um, we're gonna, um, Green Left is going to be organising a film screening on Saturday, 7pm. 7, 7 well, it's not necessarily organised entirely by Green Left. It's organised by also Pablo himself and a number of other um, groups as well. But Green Left is one of the co-sponsors of the event, and it's going to be happening at 7pm this Saturday. If you go on the greenleft.org.au website, you'll be able to find details on how to book your tickets and um, be able to attend the screening. And there's also going to be a Q&A as part of uh, the film screening, which will feature um, Pablo himself and a number of other um, important people. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much, um, Pablo. And, um, yeah. Um, see, you, see, you, see, you, see you on Saturday, hopefully. Yeah, I'll see you on Saturday. Okay. Thanks. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and now we're getting to the end of the program. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week, and um, we'll all see you, hopefully, all next week for another um, round of great programming. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap